0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the methodologically problematic edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It's been a busy week. This week, so we have lots to talk about. Uh, I am Felix Sermon of Fusion. I'm here with Anna Shemansky, who's Hello. going to drop some knowledge about Italian bank bailouts. This yep. is why we have her around these parts. We I am here with Slate's very own Jordan Weissman, who's also going to drop some knowledge about Seattle minimum wages. Yep. I am. That was the way I
0: redo that. <laughs> I <like> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna squeak <laughs> i don't know jordan is, in, jordan is in a very squeaky mood this week uh, we should just keep going Fuck it. just keep just going. Going. Uh, yeah hey everyone
3: it's me i don't know why i just squeaked at you uh, this is what usually ends up on the cutting room floor good morning um, everyone but yeah so let's fling the bed bugs <laughs> yeah keep going
2: uh so so jordan yeah if we can get jordan past his like cracking himself up we will we will talk about um the minimum wage in seattle it went up and that may or may not have had what's the word disemployment effects we will come to that but first we have to mention the 2.4 billion dollar fine which was recently imposed by margarita vestager the european competition commissioner on google which is a great story and i've been thinking about this one quite a bit because you can take it basically you can read her complaint against google and you're like this makes perfect sense they're totally being anti-competitive and they should get fined and there's this remedy and then you read google's response and you're like no google's totally right and um I think I'm coming down on the side of Google here. I'm not sure. But let's first explain what she's upset about. And what she's upset about is comparison shopping. Yep. And this may or may not be a subset of search. We'll get to that. But basically, when you type in, and the example people are using, I'm not quite sure why, is Puma shoes. This seems to be the standard example I'm on the internet. I'm guessing that
3: Puma still has some brand presence in. Well, they're Europe. German, you know. Yeah. So
2: anyway, you type in, you. Type Puma Shoes into Google, and then there'll be some ads at the top of the search results for people selling Puma Shoes. There'll be um, non-ad results from Puma itself and other people selling Puma Shoes. And then along the top of the page, you will see a bunch of photographs of Puma Shoes um, being, being sold by various merchants online and with prices attached to them and this is basically something called Google Shopping. It's a comparison shopping service which they just embed in the search results. You can go there separately, it has its own website at shopping.google.com. Mm-hmm. Um but almost no one does. The main way that people use Google Shopping is just because it turns up in the search results. And so if you want to click on one of those search results, um they're very clearly labeled as being an ad and you can click on that shoe and buy it and go straight to the website now what the europeans are saying is other websites perform the same function that you can go to other comparison shopping websites and look at different shoes being sold by different people and work out which one's cheapest or best or, or whatever and they are saying that google is anti-competitively promoting its own comparison shopping service above the others which have now been relegated to like page five of the search results where no one will ever see them
3: yeah which i mean it is like it is what it is i mean it is promote i mean like it is promoting its its shopping service above the others i mean it is right there at the top of the bar and the other's have disappeared into the other of page five right but it's not as though you can
0: only shop through google i mean you're immediately going to see amazon you're immediately going to see puma you're immediately going to see many other yeah the question
3: is the question is whether or not this is predatory right it's like yeah that they are doing this i don't think anyone is very few people would question whether or not they are leveraging their power in search to promote their own shopping service the question is is this an antitrust violation
2: and certainly if you are a price comparison competitor to Google, um, it's easy to see how you might feel that way. Yes. <laughs> um, right. Um, you know, once upon a time before Google Shopping really took off, you would have done better on your SEO. You would, have, you might have been more likely to make it onto the front page. And then all of that traffic died away. And now how are people going to even find you?
0: But I guess I would also ask, did that traffic also die because Consumer habits have changed in terms of how we shop. We don't use comparison shopping tools. Well, as often. we
2: do, and yeah. this is the inter- This is one of the points that Google makes: is that it is actually quite small as a comparison as a comparison shopping service. If you compare it to the biggest comparison shopping service of all, which is Amazon, Amazon. right? Yeah, and Amazon is you know has its own issues about like promoting its own. Wears as opposed to other people using its platform, which Julia Angwin and others have written about at length. But Amazon is a pretty good comparison shopping service. And what Google is saying is that we are competing with Amazon. We're not competing with other services which are going to be down in the search results.
3: Yeah, but the antitrust question here isn't whether or not Google is a sh- you know comparison shopping monopolist. It's whether they essentially have monopoly on search and then are using that to unfairly undercut their competitors? And so this is yeah. the
2: real crux of the matter yeah. is what the European Union is alleging is that they are abusing their search monopoly in order to give an artificial advantage to their comparison shopping business, much as to use the obvious precedent here, Microsoft abused its operating system monopoly to give itself. Um, an artificial advantage in browsers. Yes. And back then, people kind of agreed and eventually came to the conclusion that the browser was a separate business from the operating system, and so you shouldn't be able to use one to give yourself an artificial advantage in the other. I kind of agree with that, although... You know, I could be persuaded either way, especially nowadays with things like Chrome, where the browser basically is the operating dis- system. I th- feel like yeah, I guess, the right. distinction is becoming blurrier. But in this particular case, I really do believe that comparison shopping is part and parcel of what people want from search. That they're not really two different things. When you're comparison shopping, by definition, you're searching for something.
0: Right. But I think we've already said that essentially the biggest comparison shopping tool is Amazon. And people if, search right, on Amazon as but well. But if you Google something, you will get Amazon results on the first page. So the idea that this is anti-competitive, it's anti-competitive against very tiny European comparison shopping tools, but not against well, so Google's biggest competitive. Well, I mean,
2: it's also anti-competitive against Google's biggest competitive because with the Amazon links, you need to click on the link and go to Amazon. Yeah. Right. With with the Google links, you get pretty photographs. Is that hurting and...
0: Amazon? Well, I mean,
3: the people who really were pushing for this were like Microsoft, for instance, other you know American search companies as well. You know, they had Bing. Um, right. But... But we're not talking about search. Well, we're talking about well, they comparison also, but they also Bing, comparison shopping was a huge part of Bing's uh, business or business plan and and bing
2: wanted google to link to bing more prominently was that i forget i don't so i don't know
3: exactly what their demands were but to give you i guess a little bit of background about where this whole you know saga started um american companies like microsoft were pressing the american ftc to bring a a similar action and actually there's a lot of controversy about what happened there because in the end um the federal trade commission decided no, they were not going to sue Google over the same thing that Europe is now cracking down on them. However, it later came out that their own staff researchers had put out a report saying, yes, you should bring a case over this same behavior. So there were definitely people at the FTC who thought Google was acting anti-competitively over these same issues. Um, the you know the kind of political appointees at the FTC decided, nope, we're going to vote against. And so it went over to Europe, which is now so acting as sort of the world's antitrust enforcer.
2: One of the key questions I have here in my mind is whether... There's some kind of regulatory interest in keeping search as a pure, like, search of the rest of the internet. And stopping it from becoming a one-stop shop. Yeah. So what Google has increasingly done is if you Google a person, it will give you information about that person right there on the search result page. If you Google a business, it will give you the phone number, the address, the map, like the the stuff you need. If you Google for a certain product, they will link you, you know, they will give you that product straight there. And that is... They're not like searching. Well, they are kind of searching the web for that, but they are also providing this as a service. They're saying like you shouldn't need to make a second click if you don't want to. And that's not search really. But I feel like that's clearly good for consumers.
0: Right. And I also think when you're talking about Google's competitors, it is important to remember that I think when people think, oh, well, who's competing against them in search? And they think like Bing. But I would disagree with that. It also has to do with how people access the internet. And it's the idea of as things become increasingly mobile and people increasingly use apps, if you're going to buy something on your phone, you're just going to go to the Amazon app. You're not going to go through Google. So there's a question as people shift more and more towards mobile how, you know how is that going to impact the revenues of Google so they're going to then have to change their business plans? Again, I'm not saying there's no justification for some of this lawsuit, but I do think this idea that Google has no competitors is not entirely accurate.
2: No, and I don't think anyone's saying that. But I, the, the deep question here is really, like, what is Google going to do, I think? Like, yeah. the the European Union has said, well, the remedy here, quite aside from the $2.4 billion fine— is you can promote your own Google shopping service only insofar as you do so on an even playing field with any other comparison shopping services. And, and for that... me, like the only way they can possibly do that is by just getting rid of those Google shopping results altogether.
3: Yeah. And how does that interact with things like Maps? I mean, like, you know, other services that Google adds that... Are Maps not, is o- the
2: you know. obvious next step here. Yeah. That if you can't if you can't promote Google Shopping, then you can't promote Google Maps either. Yeah,
3: I think there is definitely – But I mean, this whole subject of bundling is I, – I feel a little bad because I went on this whole rant about antitrust the last week. And bundling is this one area where, actually, I do feel a little bit ambivalent because it's really hard to figure out where to draw the lines. It's not simple. Like, we're talking, and right. it's like, what is the next step? And, you know, I, I was looking at this and feeling ambivalent, but, you know – There are other instances of bundling that have much more profound economic consequences. Um, One example that's been written about in law reviews is things like app stores, where Apple makes Everyone come through its app store to buy, you know, Spotify or any third party app, and that actually puts its own apps at an advantage, essentially, over its competitors because Apple... it
2: doesn't need to pay a cut to Apple. Exactly,
3: right? Spotify has to pay a cut to Apple because it uses the app store. Apple Music does not have to pay a cut to Apple. So, I mean, there are things like that. I'm wondering: well, are we going to see the entire, you know, if they come after bundling, are we going to see the entire mobile? economy like subject like but that to- would be tossed be good, around by, right
2: maybe, i mean it i I, I, w- I wouldn't have a problem with people forcing apple to tighten to, to loosen some of the control that it has over the app store i mean i've you know app developers for years have been asking for things like paid upgrades which they haven't been able to get
3: Absolutely. I think I, I think it, it could be good. But I'm just saying that's one huge example. Once you start, if if Europe is going to start cracking down on various forms of bundling in the Internet and mobile economy, um, it's it's a really big deal. And I think given how aggressive they've been or how aggressive they seem to want to be like, we're going to see I, this is just the beginning. I think I really I really believe that.
0: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Okay. Uh so okay, so Anna. It was not that long ago that we were extolling yes. the virtues of Europe's bank resolution regime and how wonderfully it worked in Spain.
0: We may have to amend that slightly.
2: <laughs> so it turns out that when it comes to what are popularly known as the the pigs, Portugal Italy, Greece, Spain, that they are not all the same when it comes to resolving their banks. No. And Italy had two banks in the Veneto, that's the sort of rich region in the northeast. Around Venice, yes. Um, which were troubled. Yes. And the European banking authorities determined that they were insolvent or basically not capable of continuing, just as they did with the Spanish Bank a few weeks ago. Correct. Except the result was a bit different,
0: yes, so if you remember, with the Spanish bank, there was basically no state aid involved. So what happened here is because the European body said it is not in the public interest for this bank to be resolved through your eu law we will they then said we will allow it to be essentially resolved through. Italian insolvency procedures.
2: So wait, the Italians said that or the Europeans said that?
0: So the Europeans said that it was not in the public interest for it to be done through EU and then they essentially acquiesced to allowing it to be resolved through the Italian banks.
2: The Europeans were perfectly happy with the Spanish bank to be resolved through EU law. Why were they not happy with the Italian banks being resolved in the same way? They
0: said that it... This is where it's actually quite a contradiction because they said it essentially... These banks weren't systemic; they're tiny, right? Which is true. It only represented like two percent of the Italian banking system. But the reason that that is a contradiction is because then the reason that the Italian government used for why they had to essentially bail out creditors was because it was systemic.
2: So, so <laughs> okay, systemic it, to Italy. So, this is this is what I don't understand at all because i I had this sort of pocket model in my head of what was going on, which was the the. Italian government, for various reasons, is more prone to bailing out its banks than the Spanish government is. And so when an Italian bank fails, there are various kind of hidden levers of power where the banks, and specifically the bank creditors, the the people who are owed money by the bank and who might well get wiped out in a Spanish-style restructuring... Uh, Those people managed to sort of twist the Italian government's arm and persuade the Italian government to throw in a few billion euros to bail them out. What you're saying is that actually it wasn't like political pressure from the creditors which did this, but it was actually pressure from outside Italy entirely. It was the EU saying don't do this.
0: Not necessarily. So what I'm saying is the, the EU didn't stop. The Italian government from doing this. Essentially, they allowed a a loophole to exist so that instead of having to abide by the rules of the BRRD, the Banking Recovery and Resolution Directive, which would have required 8% of liabilities to be bailed in before any state aid could be injected, they instead just said, okay, we're not going to resolve this through EU law. And then when the Italian said, okay, well, then we're going to take care of this through Italian law, they just let them.
2: So the question is – the first question I have is why did the Italian government want to spend 15 billion euros or whatever it was bailing out these tiny banks when they had a perfectly workable way of resolving these banks without spending a penny
0: because many of the senior unsecured bondholders are mom and pop investors that is essentially the biggest reason why this happened and it's also frankly because the banking industry is very closely tied to the PD the governing party and This is where this also gets a little dicey in terms of how this bailout of creditors occurred, because essentially what happened is there was taxpayer money, this state money that was injected to this other bank that took over one of the most well-capitalized banks in Italy that, A, only had to take – they only took over the good assets. All the bad assets are being put in a bad bank. And they still were given all of this state aid to essentially shore up the balance sheet. They were given $1.3 billion to pay for firing people.
2: It's almost as though the Italian banking system is deeply enmeshed with the Italian government and the whole thing is quite corrupt. Yes,
0: which is part of how this whole problem existed in the first place. Because part of the reason that all of these retail investors are holding this paper that was significantly risky was because they were told it wasn't risky. They were told like, no, you know, like... They weren't. They were did not explain the difference between senior secured and senior unsecured, and so that's why essentially we are in the situation. We're Our,
2: well, I mean, the Italian investors as well are historically bond investors in the way that Americans aren't. But I think what you you really put your finger on something important here, which is that banks all have. Um, capital stacks they have you know secured debt and unsecured debt and subordinated debt and equity and all of this kind of stuff and in principle you just sort of work through the capital stack until you get to a point where
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know you've you've managed to write off enough money to make the bank sensible again in practice that works exactly up until the point at which you reach Mom and pop retail investors, right? And when you reach mom and pop retail investors, whether they're depositors or whether they're bondholders or whatever it is, then politics starts happening. Mm-hmm. Right, so I've, I
3: have a question: Is are Italian banks still selling mom and pop investors these uh, savings instruments that are basically senior secured debt that they think are just like Unsecured. vanilla? Unsecured. unsecured. Sen- sorry, senior unsecured. Debt. Yeah, there's been a big pullback on that. Okay. yeah, because it seems like the fact that Italian banks sold all you know Vincenzo and Maria, all these you know these savings vehicles are are why it now can't really. I mean, it still has to do bailouts. It it, it can't do what Europe. Yeah, is it's it's to politically
0: be... untenable. And, yeah. and I think there's also a question of you know why the EU allowed this to happen. And I think there's also you could argue that you. Are, we're kind of turning a corner in Eurozone, like the economy is looking pretty good. We have Macron. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. in comparison, you have Macron and Merkel kind of, you know,
3: they're getting their group. Europe's getting its yeah, group. They, and so they I, went on
0: vacation to Jamaica exactly. and it's just
3: feeling good about itself. So
0: I think there's a question of like they didn't really want to rock the boat. But the reason this is really significant, it's not just because we're talking about the Italian banking sector. It's because the whole point of the BRD was that it's supposed to have teeth it's supposed to be this is you can't have a banking union if you don't have laws that affect everyone equally um, and
2: why do we want a banking union because we have a single currency and it and what happens in a currency a single currency zone is that money will naturally flow to the safest banks basically that you're going to have this giant sucking sound where people move their money out of risky banks in Spain and Italy and Portugal and Greece and move them to safe banks in Holland and Germany. And if you have a banking union, then that helps reassure people in the southern countries that it's all one union.
0: Right. And it's also important to remember that the grand bargain we had was, okay, we'll We'll go through with QE, which is essentially going to be supporting the bonds of all of these countries. But as part of that, you have to start severing the ties between the banking sector and the state. Otherwise, you have all these contingent liabilities.
2: Yeah. Because sovereign debt crises and sovereign banking crises are, to a first approximation, indistinguishable. Right. Yeah, And so you really want to get the banks sort of separated from the sovereign finances so that the sovereign finances can start we can start getting a handle on those but europe seemed
3: comfortable making an exception here or at least turning a blind eye to what Italy's doing yes so it's and undermining it entirely own.
0: because now we're essentially you if if they can then in the future other countries now can say okay it's also not in the public interest for this to be resolved through eu so we're gonna take care of it through our own laws and then do exactly the same thing. So then all of a sudden you're going to have banks issuing riskier paper again because there's like, well, we have a state backing. Like this is why you need firm laws that are applied the same everywhere.
2: Uh, My my feeling is that this kind of parade of horribles is is maybe a little bit overstated. That you have a clear example in Italy of a government which seems to be incredibly willing to bail out its banks at the drop of a pin it's not obvious to me that any other European country is really in that situation. Right, but you
0: think if something happened with Deutsche Bank that they're going to let, you know, senior unsecured bondholders be bailed in? But so sure,
2: that- because the Deutsche Bank bondholders are all, I don't know, sovereign wealth funds from the Middle East. Also, there's no way that, East. The, the
3: European, like, the European regulators are not going to... S- Sit back and say, "Oh, Deutsche Bank, Germany, you take care of that." <laughs> like they're like that's just, that is the most systemically important bank in the world. They're For going the most to, they're part, I intervene.
0: Yeah, we think so. But again, this is why it's important to have universal laws. Otherwise, you just don't know, and you it, I think, injects more risk into the system.
2: I I. I... You know, And I can see that argument, but I have this feeling that if it kind of injects a little bit of safety and backstop, that we have a system which can resolve banks fine, as we saw in Spain. And then we have another system which can also resolve banks, as we saw in Italy. And it's like having the sort of belt and suspenders approach. I mean, I can, I can see the moral hazard argument about how like, it injects risk and stuff, but I think ultimately it doesn't really make things riskier.
0: But it's also to a certain extent, Italy is dealing with this banking problem. But again, it be, by taking these measures, it's not really dealing with the underlying problems
2: right, sure. But that's ah we'll talk on the issue. That's of, of course. but but
0: again, it's I think this is the problem though when you when you keep allowing different countries to essentially do, take these ad hoc measures, you're not dealing with any of the fundamental problems. And that, in my mind, makes it much more likely that down the line, you're going to continue to have additional crises. And how are you supposed to have further integration of the EU if you don't essentially have a banking union? And if every country can deal with their banks differently, you do not have a banking union. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the Slow cars from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was
2: silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, at my computer. And I, I got people fracking me. I got this and that. But I'm safe.
0: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Okay. Um this is going to be a pretty wonky episode. I have a feel I have a weird feeling about this one because after geeking out about bank resolution in Europe and about antitrust in Europe we're now going to geek out about the correlation between minimum wage and employment
3: that's not that's not the geeky part no we're gonna get much wonkier than that Felix. <laughs> that's 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 light wonk yes. <laughs> that's like the, that's the fuzzy handcuffs of
2: wonk we're gonna get okay so here. let's let's talk about <laughs> seattle because seattle has one of the highest or if not the highest minimum wage in the country uh, well a few
3: people i i don't know where it stands right now so a few years ago You may remember, dear listeners, uh, Seattle became the first major city to raise its uh, minimum wage up to $15 an hour, or at least set its, its minimum wage to raise to $15 an hour over several years. Um, And this got everyone very, very excited. Uh, Obviously, progressives were thrilled to have this sort of policy victory. And economists were excited because they're like, holy shit, someone is going to massively raise the minimum wage, whether this is a good idea or not. And we're going to get to see what comes of it. And then the city of Seattle actually did something very cool. It um, decided to fund a series of studies by the University of Washington to track the outcomes of this grand policy experiment, just to see, okay, what's going to happen to our economy now that we've decided to embark on this? Um, And this week, um, one of the first major studies in that series came out, and it wasn't... um,
2: what the the city of seattle it wasn't
3: it wasn't it wasn't so positive and i should say I, i don't know how many people may remember this or not but at the time i was a little skeptical of the idea of of doing this i was nervous felix was more on board with it um so the study came out and basically what it found in the end was that this higher minimum wage ended up costing the average low wage employee $125 per month. That they actually made $125 less per month. And
2: that- and this this is one of the fascinating things is because it turns out that Washington is one of I think only four states where the data that the government gets is not only about how much employees are being paid, but also about how many hours they work. Yes. And so what this study found was that, hey, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who did actually see their wages go up as a result of the higher minimum wage. But those people ended up working fewer hours. And the number of hours that they lost more than compensated for the amount that they were paid per hour. Exactly. And so this is sort of the what this
3: paper is showing is sort of the worst case scenario for what a minimum wage can do. Like, m- Almost every economist agrees a minimum wage can basically do one of three things. Either it's too low to matter, right? Your minimum wage is like, you know, just not going to be binding. It does, it's not going to affect what businesses do because everyone makes more than it anyway. The second thing is you can raise it high enough that, you know, people get paid more as a result. Um, maybe some people lose their jobs. Maybe none lose their jobs. But in the end, people are making more money overall. And then the third, the worst case scenario, is that you raise it so high that it cripples businesses or it can, businesses close, they cut back on their employees' hours because they can't afford them. And then you end up with what this paper says happened in Seattle, where they make less. Um, so theoretically, for people who are skeptics of this, this, this paper should be sort of a, a spike the ball moment. Like, ha
0: yes, we were right. <laughs> right. But the economic th- models do work. Yeah, but it's.
3: It's, you know, it's a really super interesting paper because of the data that they use. Like you're saying, Felix, um, it's so unusual, but there are just a whole bunch of methodological things about it that people are a little uncertain of right now. And frankly, quirks in their findings that make even even I'm kind of questioning. I don't really understand how it makes sense. Um, and I can get into
2: that deeper. If we, you want, we we but. don't need to get too into the weeds about well, whether they're including like chain no, stores, no, so, but and so here, which comparisons they're using. Here,
3: here's, here's an example of the sort of thing that's popped up in this paper um, that critics are, singling, uh, are, are seizing on. And, and frankly, I, I've talked to the authors of the paper and they haven't given an answer yet. They're saying we're going to address that eventually. This paper says out right at the beginning that the higher minimum wage in Seattle, um, which only has risen up to about $13 at this point or at the point they're studying, um, should not affect the number of jobs. At $19 an hour, it should not affect the number of people making more than $19 an hour or the hours they're working. That's just too high up the wage scale to be affected by this change. Um, But then if you look at their tables of what happened to the restaurant industry industry. It implies that, in fact, the higher minimum wage increased the number of jobs above $19 an hour, Increase, increased the number of jobs or hours of people working above $19 an hour. So that is kind of internally contradicting in the paper. It doesn't make any sense. And so some critics are essentially saying what we think you're actually picking up on is just Seattle's economic boom. Um, you know what they're doing in this, this paper is comparing Seattle to a control group that is, they call a synthetic Seattle, where essentially they take a bunch, and frankly, I think financial economists would find this process really interesting, but we can talk about it another day. Anyway, they take a bunch of different parts of Washington state, and then they kind of weight them to try and recreate uh, an economically equivalent of Seattle, or a, a an agglomeration that is um, equivalent to the city of Seattle, Seattle, Frankenstein. Yes, a Seattle Frankenstein up until the minimum wage change. So then you can compare the synthet- synthetic Seattle to what happened in the real city. Um, and what people are saying is, well, maybe your control didn't really work. And so what you're just finding is that Seattle had a you know tech boom driven by Amazon, and this synthetic Seattle did not. And so that's and this is the kind of thing where it's not really. Some people it's not really a left or right thing right now. It seems like a lot of economists just in general who are interested in methods and, um, you know, good social science are just trying to make sense of this and are a little hesitant to put too much stock in it yet. It's, it's a really interesting first stab um, and it's going to get better. It's a working paper. I so, think. So but, but
2: just from a public policy perspective, yeah. um, let's take a, a whopping great big hypothetical and say yeah. that the findings of the paper are true. Yeah. And, that, mm-hmm. you know, people did wind up working less and, and making less money. Um, would that be an argument a, like that it was a bad idea and they shouldn't have done it? Or is that like, I mean, I can easily see an argument saying, look, a minimum wage is a good thing, even if it causes these effects.
0: Well, I mean this is a th- right but if you're if ultimately the workers that in theory you raise the minimum wage for are now making less then the question yeah, is is that benefiting yeah, them there, and i there's a moral
3: argument some people on the on the left will make that labor should be valued at a certain level that we should that like a living wage is not just an economic thing it's a symbol about what, what the value we place on work and thus you know you should you should be able to support yourself on the minimum wage um the thing is I, you know i have i'm sympathetic to that but in the end like like anna's saying is if people low-wage workers are coming out making less money as a result of this but also that's really bad having more time well, where they're not working. Yeah, then. but <laughs> I don't know how many. I
0: feel like if you are... have money and you have time, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't, yeah. not not as great.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's I I would say if this if if these findings hold, I would be really really nervous about this. And like maybe it's a borderline idea in Seattle, but then you, you really have to question the idea of bringing a fifteen dollar minimum wage yeah. national at that place. And, and I and,
2: and as you say, like Seattle is a rich city which. We assume maybe, probably, perhaps might be able to afford this. Um, we have definitely seen, I mean, the the classic example is Puerto Rico, where you have the federal minimum wage in effect and is clearly too high and is causing massive disemployment effects in Puerto Rico. And the, there is a strong sort of bipartisan consensus that the minimum wage should come down in Puerto Rico. So
3: that, it's interesting you bring up Puerto Rico because, you know, there's actually been pushback from economists on the left about that they've actually tried to say oh it's not you know the minimum wages fault that puerto rico has all these problems and i I, I know (laughs) exactly and i tend to agree you know felix i tend to agree with you on this about puerto rico but the sad conclusion i've kind of just come to is that this policy argument is just not or I mean, and this is how most policy arguments go, but it's just not going to be resolved by economic studies. No No one's ever going to make a decision on this in the end based on the results of what this team in Washington finds. Uh, It's going to be fascinating and it's going to be great to write about, but it's just, that's not
0: how the political debate is ever going to work. Right. I think because what you're seeing is if you're on the right or on the left, you kind of pick the parts of the different studies that justify your conclusions. And I think that's...
2: Yeah, I'm not seeing a lot of people sort of changing their prayers as, as a result of this. I'm, study, I'm like but, one of the closest. But, but, the fact but Jordan's that like, getting there. Yeah,
3: I'm like, well, yeah, I'm one of the. Well, I mean, in the sense that like I was skeptical, I'm looking at this study that verifies or like that confirms all of my skepticism, except I'm skeptical of this new study. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, I'm, trying, I'm trying to be a good Bayesian here. <laughs>
1: it's, it's... This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: After all of this wonkery, I'm just going to lead off with a $700 number, which is totally unwonky. And it comes from a piece which Eater published about the Beatrice Inn.
3: Oh, my God. That piece was unbearable. I mean, like, I know it was a great piece, but oh, the Beatrice Inn. Ryan
2: Sutton, the um, main restaurant critic for Eater, went to the Beatrice Inn, and they have a legendary steak there. They dry age it but they don't just dry-age it. As they're dry-aging it, they cover it in a cloth, and the cloth, they they soak it in in whiskey. Now, you know, this is a fun gimmick, and I wouldn't mind trying this steak, but what Ryan did before ordering the steak was say, so how much does it cost? And the guy (laughs) goes, it's $14 an ounce. And and Ryan sort of blinks, and he goes, okay. And then the guy goes, and there's a minimum of 50 ounces. Which, if you do the math, works out at an absolute minimum of seven hundred dollars for the steak, and then by the time you add on a tax and tip, this is a nine hundred dollar steak.
3: I mean, this is this is the Beatrice Inn. It's owned by Graydon Carter, right? Like, no, oh, not no, anymore. No,
2: oh, not anymore. It used to be, but it's it's. We often hear about like crazy prices for tasting menus and stuff. It's rare that we hear about a crazy price, this kind of crazy price, just for a steak. A How steak? much you what a cow cost? <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> Oh man. Okay. Uh, my turn. Yeah, your turn. Mine's a
3: pretty simple number. It's 12 billion. It's how much Warren Buffett made on his investment in Bank of America a few years back.
2: So he puts in 5 billion for a bunch of warrants. Yep. And now he's converting them into stock. 17 billion. Up. $17 billion worth of stock. And he made 12 billion on that trade. There you go. I mean like
3: good trade. he's he's active good. management is alive and well. <laughs> like Warren Buffett is good at his job. Like there yes, are very there are very few certainties in this world, but Warren Buffett is very good at what he does. Say whatever else you will about that weird man. He he is <laughs> good. True.
2: I mean, there is a there is a sense in which his trades are to a certain degree self-fulfilling. Yeah. That right. just because Warren Buffett like yeah. places a very public vote of confidence in an institution, that means that everyone else starts piling in. But even so I would I, agree. But
3: you had to work to get to you know, you have right. to work to become Beyonce. Like, you know, <laughs> and it becomes self-fulfilling that our albums are gonna do great when they when they hit. And
0: like that's 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 Warren Buffett. Yes. <laughs> He's Queen B. The Beyonce of Finance. For- <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) so i feel like my number is slightly a cop out but not entirely so my number is zero and this is the number of banks that failed the stress test either the qualitative or quantitative which was zero so
2: So this is the first time that's ever happened
0: yes because often they would even if they passed the quantitative there were still some qualitative measures and then it was kind of embarrassing
2: and so now they're all like Woo, happy days are here again. Oh, and the they, shareholders are like woo, share- happy days are here cause because they're going to get a nice payout. They they've announced I I believe a record like 92 billion dollars of share buybacks in one day.
3: Yes. It's it's just like you know that that
2: gif of from the Wolf of Wall Street, really,
3: no our is just throwing money off the boat. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening right basically, now.
2: Basically, but, basically, but this take is, the money. But this is ultimately good news, not only for bank shareholders, but also for people yes. who are worried about systemic risk in the banking sector. Right, the Fed, by failing to pass the banks up until now, has shown that it is actually taking these tests pretty seriously, and. Um, by giving them a passing grade, now people, it has credibility.
0: Yeah, I agree. More than the BRRD.
2: <laughs> okay. On which note, I think we will wrap this episode of Slate Money up. We will talk to you next week. But I need to thank Dan Schrader who produced this podcast. I need to tell you to go listen to I Have to Ask, which is Isaac Chodna's podcast where he interviews people i need to tell you to email us on slate money at slate.com because that's how we get all of our ideas and i need to tell you to stay subscribed leave us reviews and listen to us next week where i'm pretty sure we're not going to be as wonky as this week because it would be hard to be as wonky as this week on slate money
1: Money don't make me happy And a fella can't make me fancy We're smiling for a whole other reason It's all smiles through our four seasons Shining, Shiny Shiny shining, yeah